Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, were you able to make it to work today without uh, finding yourself trapped, ensnared, or otherwise captured by some sort of large uh, arachnid or insect? Barely. Barely. It was sort of like metal arachnids. Yeah. Traffic is what oh, I'm talking yeah, you about. Drove. Yeah. 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 I took the train, so I had to deal with actual giant arachnids in the subway tunnels. But, but generally, I mean, you know, they're just going about their business. All they want to do is protect their young and lay more of their young inside your belly. And you can know. you blame them? I know. I mean, especially on a cold day like this, that's the warmest place to to lay the your your brood of eggs. Yeah, seventeen degrees in yeah. the south here. All right. So what we're talking about. If you guys are uh, picking up what we're putting down here, are traps. Yes. Because, you know, us humans, we're, we're pretty good tool users. We create traps all the time. But out there in nature, there's stuff going on. Yeah. I mean, human traps are almost limitless. I mean, you can start with the really basic stuff, like you just take a, a like a tiger pit. You know, here's a pit. Cover it with some uh, some brush after I've uh, dug it out. Something walks across the top. It falls in. Boom. Now I've caught myself a, a tiger or a person or what have you. There's a, uh, you can, and then if you want to uh, up the ante, maybe you have uh, sticks at the bottom of it, a sharpened stick, so that someone falls in, then they're going to uh, potentially be impaled upon those sticks. You have simple animal traps. Have you ever used one of these, like to catch uh, wild animals or cats for spay and neutering? No. We, we, uh, my wife and I did a little of that at, uh, our previous house. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild stuff because you'll catch multiple things. We were trying to, at one point we were trying to catch a dog that, like a puppy that was in the neighborhood. And it was, you know, a sweet little dog, but clearly had no owner, was eating garbage. And we're like, all right, we gotta catch this dog. We can, we can do some good for this dog. But ultimately that dog was too wary. Instead, we caught like three different possums. We caught two different stray cats. And that eventually led into doing some spay and neutering with those guys. And then we ca- caught our own cat twice. Was this just a, a day of like catching things? Was this like a, hey, we're going to go out and we've got this trap? Oh, you know, you set thing? it up in the night. You catch a possum, set it up in the day. You catch uh, your own cat, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. And then I, then ideally, the, I think the county would come and take it away. But but yeah, that's a fun little trap. Uh, but then there are, uh, there are far less fun traps that we've devised, of course, when you get into the world of landmines. We create explosive right. devices. uh uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, you know, are triggered when one steps on them or when, uh, you know, it's a proximity mine of some kind. And, uh, and those are, of course, uh, pretty, uh, deadly and pretty, um, horrible inventions. But throughout all of this, we, we tend to think, well, hey, that's humans. We're tool users. We make things. We make things that react to the presence of others. We create all of these, uh, these traps, be it something, uh, rather, uh, simple, like a little box with a twig mm-hmm. or, uh, or something advanced, like a landmine. We're wily. We're clever. Yeah. There couldn't be any other animal or insect or arachnid out there that could be as clever as us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is not true. But we're wrong. Yeah. And specifically in this podcast, we're going to talk about arachnids and insects, uh, creatures that we tend, we generally just think there's no way that these guys are up to anything on the level of human beings. And, you know, I couldn't help but think of Charlotte's Web when we were looking at this material. Oh, yes. Because spiders obviously are featured pretty well in this area of trapping things. We tend to think about them as these passive trappers. But I was thinking about Charlotte A. Cavatica in in, uh, Charlotte's Web and how when Wilbur figures out that she's like, 
basically sucking the blood out of these insects. He's just recoils in horror, doesn't necessarily want to be friends with her. And then she kind of lays it down for him. Like, look, this is how I survive. You get things brought to you in a pail. Yeah. You, you lucky pig. I, I have to use my wits and I come from generations and generations of trappers. Yeah. And I don't think a pig has a lot of room to judge a spider, really. I mean, pigs are not above, uh, doing a little killing for their, uh, their food. Well, sure. But in this instance, and particularly in this story, it was, it was this great moment where it's like, you know, you can't necessarily judge another person, animal, insect for their behavior because they're just doing what survival needs them to do. And so that is what I think is so interesting about spiders and their traps, because it's fascinating, these these webs that they create. And as you had pointed out in an earlier conversation with me, sometimes they don't even have a web. Yeah, that's one thing about spiders. Uh, I mean, of course, we have to t- go to spiders first because they are, they're the animal you think of when you think of an animal laying a trap. Mm-hmm. I mean, the spider web itself is kind of a metaphor for any kind of a trap or ensnarement or some sort of complex uh, system of uh, ensnaring uh, someone or something. Uh, but yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of spiders are, are don't actually spin webs. So they don't use their silk in hunting at all. They're just using them as building materials uh, or you know to create a nursery. Or they're using them as a drag line, sort of you know a mountain climbing uh, line to use uh, in uh, navigating their environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there are a number of spiders that do use their web and. We, we, generally, we generally go to the orb web spiders first because that's the more um, iconic spider web. That big orb-shaped web flies, fly into them, and uh, and then the, the spider comes and, and creeps across the web and, and picks them off. And uh, and generally, that's our, when we think of giant spiders in fantasy and sci-fi, they tend to be a giant orb spider. Right. But that's just one of the many different ways that uh, different species of spiders use their webs, uh, generally in some sort of hunting or trapping scenario. Yeah, and uh, this is from the article How Spiders Work by Tom Harris. I thought this was such a great description of spiders. He says, spiders are predators above all else, so hunting and killing is where they really shine. In the bug world, spiders are fairly fearsome animals. They're the tiny equivalent of wolves, lions, or sharks. Yeah, they're basically second only to the wasp, because the wasp is just going to rule over the spider every time. It's so. true, and, and we recently were talking about how if you could just somehow through, through the power of alchemy, I don't know, uh, miniaturize us humans, I would have to say that if we, if right now, if I were just about you know a, a fourth of an inch tall, if a spider was coming at me, this would be the thing that I dreaded the most, more than a cockroach or really anything else. Yeah, I mean, the spiders would be fighting over you, is the thing. Yeah, they would. Yeah. In that sense, you'd have a certain amount of power. You'd be like, uh, you'd be like the wife of Ulysses, uh, where you have all these suitors coming for you, right? And you'd get to, you get to make ridiculous, uh, uh, demands of your various spider suitors, which one will get to devour you. And still, I would not take it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a quick anatomy of a web, because as you say, uh, you know, orb spider web, classic here. Um, if you look at how a spider constructs a web, it all begins with, uh, silk line that is cast out into the wind and when the spider senses it's caught upon something it will cinch a starting point and use that connection as a bridge and this is really cool um you can actually see how this works in an article called how spiders work and when that spider crosses that bridge it actually drops another loose thread and it climbs down on this thread and creates a kind of y configuration and from here on out it will start to create these um 
I don't know, I guess you could call them uh, anchor points. Mm -hmm. And you have this sort of V configuration. And then it starts to lay out these radius points from the center of the web to the thread. So now you have these non-sticky auxiliary spirals that it creates. And the reason why it creates these non-sticky parts is because that's the part that it's going to actually travel on the web. Mm -hmm. Then it creates another spiral that is sticky. So what's amazing to me is that it's created this complex web, but it has also given itself a pathway on which to to tread it. Yeah, uh, it's it's really fascinating. One of the things that's often overlooked is that indeed not all spider web is sticky, and there in, in some of these structures that we're going to discuss, some of these traps and uh, and web environments uh, are not even sticky at all. So um, so yeah, the orb orb web spider, the orb web is the, the the big iconic web. But then there are a number of other ones. We're going to go through some of these. Uh, some bear more um, mention than others. For instance, triangle spiders make triangular webs, and these are essentially like imagine the orb web, and imagine if you cut a pizza sized. Uh, slice of that web out. Okay. That would essentially be a triangle web. Otherwise, it's basically the same idea, just uh, on a smaller scale. Now, where it starts getting a little more interesting, you get into the world of funnel spiders. Now, f- funnel spiders, they make a, a sheet of silk, and then they wrap them up and they, and to make this funnel, you know, mm-hmm. just like taking a newspaper and rolling it up, right? Uh, and the funnels have a big opening on one end, and that's uh, where they catch the prey. And they also have a small opening in the back, and that's the escape a hatch in case the uh, the spider needs to run for it, okay? And it's not sticky, but the idea here is that the spiders can move around really easily uh, in this uh, this funnel environment. They've basically made a, a you know home turf killing room uh, where they have okay. maximum ownership over their prey. So that in itself is pretty pretty amazing. It's not. Not exactly a trap, but it's uh, it's they've created an environment that they have just absolute control over, and uh, and and an outsider is going going to be an outsider in that that web of death. And I I like thinking about it in that way because it moves this idea from spiders as creating these passive traps to really being tool users, yeah, and and really premeditating the kills that they exact. Yeah, it's like if a like if a serial killer was the, was the kind that would bring somebody back to to his or her apartment, and they knew exactly where they had the uh, you know their murder weapon stashed, where they had the various instruments, where the escape routes were going to be. Again, a complete home turf advantage, and that's what the funnel spider creates here. Now, another thing is that a lot of these webs will have a uh, a kind of anchor thread. And this anchor thread sometimes is used to get on and off of that spider web. But in most cases, it actually is used as a kind of um, tripwire. And it's so sensitive, and the spider can tell so much from the movement that it can actually know if it's a leaf that's hit it or if it's just the wind or if it is indeed uh, the vibrations from an insect. Yeah, so they wouldn't be fooled, say, by a um, a child's finger poking in or something. Yeah, probably not. They would probably know pretty soon that they were about to be scooped up, put under a magnifying glass, and then set on fire. Now, a number of different spiders use webs that are far less uh, complex. They're cobweb spiders, you know, and, and everyone knows what a cobweb is. It's just a small, random mess of silk strings. Just throw it together and see what gets caught in it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mesh web spiders, very similar. Uh, you'll find often find these in grassy fields, uh, under stones and dead leaves. Uh, there are sheet web spiders that basically make uh, webs that are formed out of uh, different uh, you know, sheets of the silk, and they're just sort of jumbled together. Uh, not a lot of large gaps to be found there. Uh, though one interesting type of sheet web spiders are, are the bowl and doily spiders. Now, what the, the spider does in this situation is it makes an inverted dome-shaped web 
kind of like a, you know, a, bowl. like a bowl. All right. And that's suspended above a horizontal sheet web. And that's uh, the doily. That's the doily. And the spider hangs from the underside of the dome and attacks prey. So uh, you'll have to look at pictures of that one because it's a pretty, pretty phenomenal looking uh, web. It just looks like some sort of crazy space structure. And I like that there's a doily, like a nod to your grandmother's coffee table with yeah. a drink on top of it. Um, that reminds me of something called a net casting spider. And this can be found across the world in tropical and subtropical regions. And it's also known as the ogre face spider because of its distinctive, really big eyes. Mm-hmm. And that helps them to see prey during the nighttime. But what's notable about this is that they build cobweb sacks that are held open with their front legs. And they have an anchor thread on it, okay? And there's that anchor thread that acts as a trip wire. And the really cool thing is that when this spider senses a vibration, it will drop that net that it's holding with its leg over the insect in a thousandth of a second. Oh, wow. It's good. It's amazing. There's some really cool footage of this on BBC. But it kind of reminds me of like a character out of a mob movie. Yeah. It's just like throwing a hood over a you know unsuspecting oh, yeah. person and dragging just him off into the dragging shadows. him off yeah. and hitting him with a bag of oranges. <laughs> now another type of spider that does something just really amazing with its web are the um, the cyclosis spiders and these these guys they, they make a they make a, 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 a you know more or less standard web mm-hmm. and uh, and so you know you're not really impressed by that but. They make a decoy of themselves in the web. They craft this out of leaves, uh, bits of dead insects, you know, the, the normal type of uh, craft that a spider is going to find. And uh, in some of these cases, it even has the correct number of legs. Like, it'll even have eight legs on it. So what they've created here is a decoy to confuse predators. And if the spider is disturbed, it vibrates the web. It vibrates its body, which vibrates the web, which causes the decoy to vibrate and look even more lifelike. So in other words, if it senses that there's a predator around, mm-hmm. it'll start to say, it'll start to shake it. Yeah. The decoy and be like, hey, I'm over here, I'm over here. And, in mo- and most times these decoys are much larger than the spider itself. Yeah. So it can easily hide. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's a much larger uh, spider. It's a scarier uh, vision of the spider than it, uh, than it actually creates itself. But... The amazing part of that, I mean, just stop for a second and think about this. This is an arachnid, a lowly arachnid, and it has created uh, an artistic interpretation of itself, essentially. That's what I was sitting here thinking, that it has the ability to understand what it looks like. And presumably it's not sitting around with a mirror, Mm -hmm. you know, looking inside the mirror, maybe a giant water droplet and looking at the reflection. But in some way, it can figure out the dimensions of itself and recreate them. You know, it, it brings to mind that uh, that episode we did on the Kraken, and where we discussed the, the controversial theory that these uh, there is some prehistoric um, cephalopods that would take uh, prehistoric sea creatures and crunch mm-hmm. their bodies and create uh, basically a, a work of art that resembles themselves. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, if, if you if you just look at it that way, then yes, it's mind blowing, but also a little potentially a little crazy. But the but the idea. That that uh, this particular squid, this prehistoric squid, might have been making a decoy of itself out of the bodies of its victims. Well, that is a little more in keeping with what we're seeing here with this spider. So, I'm not saying it it makes me you know fall 100 percent behind that uh, kraken theory, but I feel like it, it gives it a little more uh, uh, a little more beef. So yeah, I mean that that's a spider as an artist, but what about as an architect, as an engineer? Ah yes, and in this we get into the world of the trapdoor spiders. These guys really uh, up the ante here because uh, 
what they are doing is they're they're kind of like taking the the idea of the uh, you know the, the funnel web, yeah. But they're 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 taking it to the next level. So uh, trapdoor spiders are essentially large uh, spiders that are uh, close relatives of tarantulas, and they build these tube-like tunnels in the side of uh, of, of a bank. Okay, uh, they dig the tunnel. Then they reinforce it with a mixture of earth and saliva, and then they add a layer of silk on top of that. So it's not just I dug a hole and I'm going to hide in it. No, they've crafted a hole. This is like yeah. the, the kind of tunnel of you know you would hear about in The Great Escape, where there's all this like structuring behind it. Right. They've smoothed out the tunnel, and the reason for this is that because eventually this tunnel could be used for bringing up some youngins, right? Right. And and just ease of movement through it. They again, yeah. it's kind of like the the idea with the funnel. They want to have maximum control over this environment, maximum maneuverability within it. So they have this uh, this this hole, this fancy tunnel in the side of this bank. But then they add the final touch, and the final touch is they add a trap door. Now there are two yes. types. There's like a cork type trap door, which is thick and it's fitted, and then there's this wafer type door, which is basically just a sheet of silk and dirt. But either way, they're both hinged, like a like a Really uh, elaborate uh, web hinge attaches yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing just to think that they could fit the trap door in there. And by the way, that, that one that's fit is has a beveled edge. Wow. So it actually fits in there. But it's that hinge that makes it so amazing. And that's when you sit there and say, how could you say this is not a tool user? Yeah. You know, they, they've used, uh, granted, they've used something that's come out of their own body. But they combine that with elements of the uh, the world around them to create yes. this totally artificial environment. Yeah, I mean they've created this hatch that they can surprise prey with because they they feel the vibrations of that prey coming along and then say, "Ha ha, here I am." Yeah, snatch you. I'm going to take you down into my tunnel, and maybe there's even some little children here that would like to eat you. Yeah, and then sometimes uh, it depends on the, the exact species, but sometimes there are there are branching. Uh, Corridors in the tunnel. Sometimes there are multiple trap doors. It's essentially they've built a hobbit hole. It's yeah. like if the if if you had a hobbit hole, and then if you got too close to the door, Frodo would jump out and drag you inside and suck all your blood out. Why is that terrifying? I mean, Frodo's not typically terrifying, but why in that context? Uh, it, just because he's up to no good. He's sneaky, you know. Yeah, and but it, now I feel like there's some sort of distant memory from Sin City that has melded with that description. Oh, yeah. Well, he's always playing creepy roles these days. He's in that uh, remake of uh, Maniac, I think it is. Huh. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we will continue just to, to take out this house of horrors in the form of insects and traps. We're back. Robert. Yes. Did you know that there is a terrible creature roaming the hundred acre woods? Ah, uh, this is where Winnie the Pooh lives. The Baxen, the Baxen. Yes, that's where Winnie the Pooh lives, along with his friends and Christopher Robbins and some mythical creature they made up called the Baxen. I don't remember the Baxen. I remember the Jaguar. Jaguar? Yes, and of course all these plots I have discovered, uh, you know, reading these to my child and watching the movies. It's all based on uh, miscommunication, isn't it? Comedy <laughs> of errors. Yeah. It's very Shakespearean. But in this instance, the Baxen is a misreading of a note that says back soon. Uh, you know, all the characters from the Hundred Acre Woods think that Christopher Robbins has been taken by this Baxen. Oh. <laughs> so they create a pit, of course, classic. Mm-hmm. And they cover the pit with a picnic blanket. They anchor it with stones. And they put an empty honey jar in the middle. Oh, I see where this is going. All to trap the Baxen. But of course, what happens? Winnie the Pooh is the Baxen all along. 
No. Winnie the Pooh being a bear of very little brains. Yes. Even but, though he, but great heart. Great, huge heart. Knows that that honeypot is, is empty, and yet he still falls for it. He still sees uh. it, and he goes for it. Anyway, the point is, traps abound everywhere. Ch- children's imaginations, uh, arachnids, and in something called ant lions. Yes, the ant lion has long been a favorite of mine. I remember uh, when I was a kid living in... Uh, Rural Tennessee, we would, uh, uh I, well, we, I would go down to the, uh, to this sort of sandy spot, uh, near our house and I would watch the ant lions in action and kind of, and try to poke little sticks down to, to, to rile them up. Uh, if you're not familiar with what an ant lion is, um, they are essentially the Sarlacc from Star Wars. <laughs> like, basically that's the concept, except on a much smaller level. And they're the, the, just the perfect creature for the, the 12-year-old boy in all of us. Um, By the way, my daughter calls me Sarlacc when she's mad at me. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, the antlion uh, is actually the larval creature here. It's mm-hmm. It's one of these situations where... It's th- this particular uh, species is most famous in its larval stage, in its incomplete stage. Uh, it eventually becomes an ant griffin, but nobody really cares about the ant griffin because it's just kind of boring. It flies around, yep. uh, and you know, and, and, and breeds and all the important things that a, an adult uh, insect needs to do. But this larval ant lion uh, is the one that lays an, a, a pretty impressive trap. What the ant lion does is it digs a pit. All right. And it places itself at the bottom. So it, yeah. in the same way that a human might create a tiger pit with stakes at the bottom, mm-hmm. it's doing a similar thing, except it is the stake, all right? So if it were in the Winnie the Pooh plot, it would have been Tigger who jumped into the pit and waited for the Baxen. I guess, yeah, yes. yeah pretty much. Okay. So uh, these uh, these guys are pretty um, amazing to look at, too, because they have this really globular abdomen. Uh, you know, this is very much in keeping with a, with a larval creature. Okay. But then they have this flattened head and these huge sickle-shaped jaws, okay? So they'll dig their way down into this hole uh, with their, you know, butt first so that their heads are at the top, all right? And then they'll... Um, you know, they're, so they're burrowed in at the bottom of this little pit. So an ant comes along, slides into the hole, crawls into the hole, and then they'll start flinging sand up uh, one side of the the pit mm-hmm. using upward jerks of their heads, making it difficult for the ant uh, to escape. And then when the ant falls to the bottom, bam, they pierce them with those sickle-shaped jaws, and they suck them dry. Right. So you're probably thinking, like, why so fierce? Why so silent to the lambs here with this pit? The reason is that their larval stage is three years long. Wow. I mean, that's a long time to, to be in that sort of stage where you know that you're, you need a lot of protein, a lot of energy to, to grow out of. So think about newborn babies. Yes. Uh, were they to remain in that <laughs> stage for three years? They'd have to learn to do it on their own a bit, right? Yeah, they would They would grow a very uh, fierce set of mandibles, and they might start hunting woodland creatures with these pits. I mean, you can kind of understand why they go to such lengths to trap prey. Yeah, because uh, think of the, uh, the caterpillar, right? The caterpillar has to eat a lot of uh, material in order to uh, gear up for that metamorphosis into its mm-hmm. next stage, into its its final stage of, of life. But it gets to eat, just eat you know limitless leaves to, to in order to, to reach that point. The antlion has to feed off of flesh, and therefore it has to have these uh, amazing uh, sickle-shaped jaws. It has to have this really cool um, uh, pit-based uh, hunting style and just laser an ambush to uh, to suck itself some some uh, some ants. The next guys are going to kind of make these these uh, horrible, fierce mandibles 
look like nothing. Yes. Look like a dream. These are the Amazonian ants. And uh, we're talking about a torture rack here. Yes. Uh, the the way that I would like to set this up for everyone is imagine you were at Chuck E. Cheese or a carnival or some variation of a carnival or Chuck E. Cheese, right? Uh, okay. What do they always have? They always have the whack-a-mole cheese. area. Well, they have cheese, but they have the whack-a-mole game, right? Yes. The whack-a-mole game, of course, has is this, uh, this platform has all these holes, and then these moles, these cartoon moles will pop up. And what happens when a mole pops up? Well, you take this hammer and you just slam it, or you attempt to. Of course, it's too fast usually for you to actually get the mole, and right. it's frustrating. And you won't get your ticket and be able to turn that ticket in for a toy. It's, it's okay, Julie. It's all okay. right. So this will make you feel better, or maybe worse, about the whole scenario. Imagine that you went up to one of these whack-a-mole games. Okay. And when you got too close, and let's say you reached out and actually touched the surface of it, several of the, the moles came out and grabbed your limbs and held you in place against the whack-a-mole game. You can't move. You're struggling, but they're just holding on tight. They're pulling you tighter and tighter. And then a whole bunch of other moles emerge from the other side of the machine, yeah. and they have hypodermic needles loaded with poison, and oh. they just start jabbing you with those things and injecting you. And then suddenly you're paralyzed. They drag you away to their, their den and do God knows what with you. They tear you limb from limb. Yeah. Oh. This is the Amazonian ant, my friends. This is the, basically what goes on with these guys. I mean, instead of the, the little whack-a-mole platform, they're just using some plant material. Yeah, but they but they definitely construct it, and that's the amazing yeah. thing. They basically build their own whack-a-mole machine here, uh, their torturous whack-a-mole machine. They cut hairs from the stem of the plant that they uh, inhabit, and they use the tiny fibers to build this spongy snare. And uh, and indeed, it, it's kind of like a, a torture rack because anything that walks across that uh, that surface, they, it's important to, to note that they 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 also drill the uh, the whack-a-mole holes in the surface. Right. And if your leg, if you're an insect and your leg will fit into one of those holes when you walk across it, they will grab onto it because they're lurking underneath there. They'll grab onto it, hold you in place, and once they have you secured. A whole bunch of uh, other ants will come up and have at you. Yeah, they'll sting you into paralysis. Yes. I really like this description from this BBC article called Fierce Ants Build Torture Rack. Once the prey is well secured by jaws fastening all its extremities, it is stretched over the platform like an ancient sacrifice to the gods. Yeah, I like that. I like it. it, it, it Clearly, that like the, the the author was just in total awe of this uh, this uh, this situation, and by all rights, they should have been because it's uh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, and and you have to, I mean, ants are pretty amazing anyway. We've seen plenty of examples of ants. You know, they build these these fabulous colonies. In many cases, they're 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 farming. They're they're bringing leaves back in order to to grow their own food within uh, the, the you know the belly of their colony. Mm-hmm. So we we know that ants are pretty advanced. We know we we've covered before some of the various ways that they wage war, that they uh, that they they build their societies. And here's just another example of their amazing ways of working together to uh, to pull something off. In this case, the limbs of another creature. Yeah, I was just thinking. I think I'm going to revise uh, my my idea of being, you know, uh, becoming a little Lilliputian Julie, little tiny Julie, mm-hmm. and, and meeting my fate with a spider. Um, I don't think that would be the most fearsome thing. Yeah. I think it would be these guys. You think so? Yeah, being torn asunder. Yeah, stretched. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to decide which which one I would uh, I would find the most. Uh, Nightmaric to encounter. I, I guess I tend to side with uh, like the ant lion or the trapdoor spider. 
just because both of them are the idea of falling into something, falling into an environment where where you, where you have no control, and then you're consumed by the monster. Oh, know? okay. And, and you know, it's like a dark space or yeah. a pit. Uh, I don't know. It just those those ideas fill me with with more dread. Fair enough. But I guess I would hold up. I feel like maybe I would have a better chance against the ant lion, just because it's it's a little simpler trap, whereas the spider is going to outmaneuver me at every turn. So I, I'm, yeah. I'm going to say the trapdoor spider is the uh, the one that scares me the most. You're right. The ant lion, they, they really have to rely on their ability to move some dirt quickly your way mm-hmm. to try to, to get you off course. So you might have a chance there. You know, mentioning the sarlacc and the ant lion, I wonder... And I know there's a lot of expanded universe material out there about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And I know some of our listeners have probably read it. Has anyone ever formulated an idea of the Sarlacc that the Sarlacc is a larva and that it is eventually, if it eats enough, uh, like, um, you know, Jedi and goblin men, that it's going to, you know, sprout wings and fly off and be some sort of fabulous, beautiful creature? I don't know. But I will now, when I get home, consult my daughter's Star Wars encyclopedia Whoa. and see what they have to say on the matter. That is, how big is that thing? I don't, I think I saw something like 265 characters. I don't know. She'll rattle off a bunch of them. I mean, I know a good amount of them, but there are some that seem extremely obscure to me. And uh, it's amazing. She'll tell me the species, the home planet. Yeah, what's her what's her absolute favorite Star Star Wars uh, subject to talk about? Um, subject. Mm, well, it's Darth Vader. I mean, she's oh, yeah. completely preoccupied by his duality. You know that that he was Anakin and became Darth Vader, and I think a lot of kids are intrigued by that because yeah. they begin to understand this idea of good and evil forces. Yeah, I remember. You know, being into Darth Vader as a kid, I think that was something that really attracted you to because you—it's like that first villain character that you 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 realize is not just this well of darkness that there is uh, that they they fell from grace. I mean, it's you know, in that sense, it's kind of a Satan character, but uh, it's actually broken down a, a lot easier for you to consume than uh, than the devil is at uh, at that stage in your uh, mental development. Right, and he's been transformed, and now he's sort of even. Um He's even sort of trapped in yeah. his own, I would say not his design, but Emperor Palpatine's design. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of like half man, half droid. Yeah, he's, he's a fabulous character. It's easy to overlook how fabulous the Darth Vader character is when yeah. you, you know you see him in commercials and stuff nowadays, and you've grown up with him. But it's you know, certainly a fabulous character for sure. There's a really funny uh, book out. I don't know if it's exactly for kids, but it's about like Darth Vader and his relationship to his teenage daughter. <laughs> I wish I could remember the title right now, but it's very funny stuff. Well, awesome. I'll have to post it on the old Facebook. Well, there you go. It's a trap, and uh, it's a good thing we ended up talking about Star Wars because we got the the title for the episode from uh, from Star Wars uh, when they when they responded. It's a trap, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, hey, do we have time for listener mail? Yeah, let's toss one out there. Okay. Well, let's call over our droid, our mail droid, and see what we have to read here. <laughs> All right, here's one that comes to us from Colin. Colin writes in in response to our Uncanny Music episode we did uh, around um, October and uh, around Halloween. He says, Hi, Julian Robert. I was catching up on the podcast, and I felt I absolutely had to suggest a soundtrack related to the Uncanny Music episode. The eerie soundtrack produced by Jean-Baptiste de Labour accompanies the 2007 French film Water Lilies. Uh, Robert, I think you will really like this album. Thanks for the podcast. Uh, P.S. I do believe the film is available on Netflix. Uh, I actually, I checked this out and, uh, and the, uh, the artist on this, uh, I believe he records under the name Para One. And it's available, this uh, soundtrack is available in full on SoundCloud from the artist himself. And it is really good. I listened to it like 
four times in a row when I was uh, working the other day. So uh, so thanks, Colin, for that uh, music recommendation. Very cool. We've got a quick one from Jacqueline. She says, this is a wonderful show, and I'm always left wishing it was longer. I just listened to the Normalcy Bias podcast. It was excellent, and I'm fascinated to learn more. I was inspired to hunt down the episode on the Rat King, which we referenced in that episode. She says, I used to work at a semi-secret underground animal testing lab. I was a rat keeper. It was under a complex of cutting-edge hospitals. On breaks and lunchtime, the hazmat cleaner would come down and eat with us. He was an extremely eccentric man, but one of his rants was about the Rat King. We never understood what on earth he was talking about, and now it's making so much more sense. After all these years, it's wonderful to have to have it come full circle and find out he wasn't as much of a loon as we thought he was. LOL, I had never even considered that there was extant folklore or documented clusters of rats. I just thought it was something his mind concocted as a result of his fairly traumatic job. As always, I learned so much. Thank you for your work and the entertaining show. There's so much I love about this. Um, there's the semi-secret underground animal testing. There's the hazmat person who now I want to go to my, my nearest hazmat person and, and find out all the secrets of every building. Perhaps I don't want. Because I, I love this because I'm imagining like an underground complex, yeah. and then there's like the the break room and yes. the restroom, room, and they're having uh, you know lunch with yeah. this dude in a full hazmat suit who's who's really breaking down the the seriousness of the Rat King threat. Right, and they're like, oh man, he's gonna say he's gonna bring up the Rat King. <laughs> Good stuff. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. All right, so hey, you want to get in touch with us? You want to share your thoughts on topics that we've covered before, thoughts, topics that we might cover in the future? If you want to check out our various blog posts, our videos, just about anything we might be up to, links to our social media accounts, go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. I can't stress that enough. That is the place to go for all your Stuff to Blow Your Mind content, including every podcast episode we've ever done, stuff you won't even find on iTunes uh, anymore. Uh, go there, and you'll find uh, links out to our Facebook account, to our Twitter account, our Tumblr account, our Google Plus account, our SoundCloud account, uh, YouTube account, and, and who knows, there are probably accounts that we have I don't even know about. There are mystery accounts for sure. Yeah. Check it out, blowyourmind.com. and if you would like to send us an email, you may do so at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs> 